talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. As climate talks continue in Glasgow, Scotland, you have to wonder how much gas is being expelled just from our politicians. Here, Scott Thompson! All right. So, Kurt... Kurt, all right, sit down. Kurt was uh, home today. He is like, what are you doing home? What are you doing home? It's a, uh, it's a follow your parents to work today. Because in grade nine, it's, you know, you take your kid to work today. And it's like, well, you've been home at work with me for like 18 months, like 85 weeks. Okay, maybe not that long. What do you, what do you, it's not like you're, you're doing the intro of the show. What is it that you need to know about what I do? So I said, if you're going to be home, then you're going to ride shotgun with me and you're going to do the show with me. If that's the, you know, take your kid to work, you're going to sit down, you're going to do the intro live. None of this taping business. And then like at two 30, he takes out, where are you going? Where are you going? I got football practice. <laughs> so wait a second. You did the intro, you recorded it. Then you bagged off all day. And now you're going to football practice. It's like, what the heck's with that? Uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, he, he followed me to work and then went out the door and that was pretty much it. All right. Uh, good afternoon. It is 310. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Willerskin on the board, Diana Weeks and Ted Michaels in the newsroom. Diana Weeks picking the top hour tune today. Give her a round of applause. Uh, let's dance. David Bowie. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Let's dance. David Bowie. I remember very vividly on mixtapes and when I was DJing. Uh, playing uh, David Bowie's Let's Dance along with China Girl off the same album. Excellent choice, Diana. Why did you go with that today? Uh, I actually just got tickets for this weekend to see Spencer, the new uh, Princess Diana movie. Oh. And yeah, and apparently Bowie was one of her faves and uh, in music, and also they were pals as in real life as well. So I thought, hey, why not play one wow. of Lady Di's favorite? See, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're looking forward to the big flick, the doc? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not a doc. It's a movie with Kristen Stewart. Oh, that one. Okay, yes. Yeah, the brand, oh, wow. brand new one. Right. Yeah, wow. yeah. That's going to be fascinating. I'm really excited. I can't wait to hear your review of that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks to you, Diana, for picking the song, and we'll see you and Ted around the round table. Uh, we all know how this global pandemic has screwed things up. When it comes to getting stuff done, uh, what, what do you want to, what, what do you want? What are you looking for? You're looking for a new bicycle? Nah, eh, ain't gonna happen. Looking for skis? Nah, eh, ain't gonna happen. Looking for toilet paper? Oh yeah, we got some of that now. Uh, new car? That might be pretty tough. Uh, anything with a, an electronic chip in it? Nah, stand in line. It has affected everything this global pandemic, including those 16 year olds or anyone who is looking to book a driving test, a road test, the elusive, the illustrious Ontario drive test. Most of us, a lot of us got one when we were young. I remember being a kid. You wanted to get the learners right on the day. You wanted to get the uh, the road test right on the day, right as soon as you're eligible. I remember going to different places, trying to get an earlier appointment. And that's before 
well before a COVID-19 pandemic. Apparently, like over 430,000 road tests were canceled during this pandemic. And as you can imagine right now, a bit of a backlog. Let's bring in Brian Patterson, president of the Ontario Safety League, and is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, all's well, all's well. I, uh, I often think back, I'm, uh, I'm uh, 62, and I got my driver's license at one o'clock on the day i turned 16 (laughs) you even remember the time that's amazing do you remember the person that took you for the road test uh um i think i uh i I, yeah no i uh uh, yeah the uh uh, i had a driving instructor neighbor who took me up for the that was back when you could have a 365 yeah uh, uh six months early so i got the I, I got the six-month-early one, so it worked out. Wow. Wow, that's before my time. I never knew about that. We had to wait till the actual birthday to uh, to get the 365. Uh, things have certainly progressed, that's for sure. Uh, com- well, now the graduated system, it's a, it's a completely different deal. Let me ask you this question. Are, is, it just as, is it just as an attraction to get a license when you're 16 as it was way back when, or is the love affair of driving kind of waned over the years? Uh, we're, we're finding it's... Uh it, it's different in different areas. So for sure, if you have good uh, urban transit uh, uh, options, uh, obviously Uber and some of the others have made it uh, uh, not uh, not the critical crisis. You know, I grew up just a little bit north of uh, downtown Toronto, and uh, uh, you were hours on a bus back then just to get uh, to get anywhere. So I think, um, uh, but for many, uh, it is. Uh, it's a rite of passage that if your brother or sister was able to do it at 16, you should be able to uh, uh, do it as well. I, so, I just think it's given us a chance to rethink the whole uh, driving when you get it and what it's for and how long you have it. So let, let's go back to that. Expand on that a little bit. How has how has the pandemic changed things for you? Well, we find there's a, uh, a lot of people are using the full-time slot. So some people want it immediately, instantly, in a day. But uh, I think uh, Minister Mulroney has done a brilliant job to try and uh, and get new thought into the process. So number one, I think it will be very shortly that you'll be able to do your G1 uh, uh, test online. Uh, you're, we've got online driver uh, training so that you don't have to go to a classroom for 24 hours over a four or five day period. Uh, and then we've got the in-vehicle uh, training broken down. But uh, so I think it's going to be a little bit different. I think people are going to uh, become better drivers. I, I mean, uh, uh, I, I got my license when there was no graduated licensing. So the day I got my license, I could have driven to California or Vancouver mm-hmm. uh, and may not have had much beyond the ability to pass the skills of a entry-level test. So I think we're we're getting better. I think the insurance company is working uh, in that area, uh, British Columbia, very, very much so. Ontario insurers uh, as well. So uh, do you absolutely, absolutely need a driver's license at 16? Uh, some do and some don't, but uh, it is a uh, it is a skill set that most people would expect to have by the time they're finished school at 25, I guess. How hard is it to get a test now? What advice do you have for those that are looking? The, the 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 two things that I you know that I think are critical is one, uh, be ready for your test. So uh, take formal driver training, 
and make sure you've got an additional 40, 50, 60 hours of driving under your belt because those are premium uh, tests. And there was a time that people would would continually write their tests. At the, uh, I couldn't believe I was in a briefing where it tw- somebody had tried their test 12 times. Yeah. So that's a lot of resources tied up if you're not ready. Uh, the driving schools, the good driving schools will be able to tell you honestly whether you're ready to go and uh, uh, and don't squander that opportunity. Uh, uh, if you haven't passed a driving test, in my view, by your second test, you should be required to go back and take training because you clearly don't have the skills yeah. involved in being able to drive. Brian Patterson with us, president of the Ontario Safety League. Big backup when it comes to road tests. Uh, lots being done to try to alleviate that. Brian, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a good time. And if you're listening on the road, drive safe because I'm out in the area and I don't need any Lugans on the road. <laughs> there you go. Well said. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board, as well as uh, Diana Weeks and Ted Michaels in the newsroom. And uh, and and what's happening here is this is what is this is what is going on behind the scenes when you're listening to Hamilton today. These are the sorts of discussions had on email and text and over the intercom back and forth uh, that we have while uh, we're doing the show that you never ever ever get to hear. So, let me explain what happened. So, yesterday we're doing the news and everything's normal and whatever. We get into the, the traffic and the weather and such, and all of a sudden, uh, Jay McQueen starts using this word. Gropple. Gropple. And th- there it is. So, everybody's like, what the hell is gropple? What is this? What, what? And the newsroom, because you know the way they are, they're just hyper-focused and, and they're wound up and all they want to do is find out what is going on and what everything means. They went off on this mass research thing to try to find out what Grappled. is really and, and, and what it, what Jay is trying to say. So I thought, let's just go to the source. Let's bring in Jay McQueen and uh, weather specialist and get him to defend himself in front of everybody. Jay, you have sent the show into a frenzy yesterday. Everybody trying to figure out what the word grapple actually means. What? I had people texting me last night saying, <laughs> oh, they, they learned a new word and people spelling it wrong. And they G-R-O-P-P-L-E and stuff like that. And and uh, <laughs> so I was correcting him on that. And, you know, yeah, it was just one of those things where. <laughs> but you've used it again today, Jay. Season. What's that? You've you've used it again today. I know, I know, and I I knew I knew as soon as I did it. I'm like, somebody's going to call because they're going to be like, well, what is, you know, is it? It's it's snowing or it's hailing or it's whatever, right? So I'm like, it is beautiful. I, if I use this again, someone's going to the phone's going to ring for sure. It is absolutely beautiful because of, you're expanding our vocabulary, you're increasing our knowledge, which is always great. So tell us what grapple is. First of all, how did you hear this word? Well, it's one of those, when you get into certain, this time of the year, we start seeing some, you know, frozen precipitation and stuff. You know, you start seeing snow. Certainly yesterday uh, and, and during the day again today and overnight, there was some uh, all-out lake effect snow that, you know, I mean, there were places yes. in the snow belts that got 15 centimeters of this stuff. But here, the temperature was not really conducive to, uh, you know, seeing snow in the form that we normally see it. It wasn't, you know, zero or a tiny bit above. We were talking, you know, five, six, seven degrees when this was happening. So grapple, basically, it's like it's it's water droplets that are freezing on the way down, and you get these kind of pellet things. And so you could almost, I could have said snow pellets, 
you could also use apparently there it's different it's different from hail and ice in the sense that it is water droplets that are freezing on top of snowflakes okay so hold up hold up what is sleet then <laughs> so so sleet that's a u.s they're term. like ice particles um and they form um from from freezing liquid you know water right and and okay. so they that that you'll see at Sort of at different temperatures as well. And Jay um, isn't uh, sorry, Jay. Even quite a bit warmer than, than we're seeing <laughs> today. Sorry, Jay. Isn't sleet a U.S. term? Oh, whoever's speaking there is I, is almost inaudible. I think somebody's. Well, uh, I've been Ted, is ask, Ted is asking. <laughs> Ted, Ted is asking. Ted is often inaudible. Yeah. Ted is yeah. asking if sleet is a U.S. term. Um, I, we, we use it here as well. Um, <laughs> I happen to be looking at something that is a, it's an, a, a, an American reference to some of this stuff, but, um, yeah, like you, you sleet, you see, um, you know, hail, we, we see often in the, in the summer more often. Um, uh, but sleet, sleet, we, we use here as well. Um, but yeah, it's all sort of complicated in how it how it uh, comes down in the atmosphere and based on temperatures and 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 then the right. temperature on the ground as well and and so yeah but but it, it looks like sleet you know sleet and grapple are sort of in uh, you know they are all right news team any more weather. questions for jay the weather specialist here on grapple well, yeah go, oh, go, go ahead, ahead. no no diana go ahead i grapple. i just did the google <laughs> grapple versus sleet and apparently <laughs> It aligns with exactly what Jay is saying. Grapple is typically a white, soft, and crumbly precipitation. Mm. But sleet starts off as a snowflake in the atmosphere, apparently melting in a warmer layer below, then refreezing into ice. This is, you know, a Canadian conversation, right? See, people people need to know. Grapple, also called soft hail, corn snow, or snow pellets. You should always try to learn something when you come to work, and we did. I thought it was a yeah. drink. What are corn pellets? What's that? I thought it was a drink. It does I sound it was, like that, doesn't it? Oh, that's grappa. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so when you've well, got I grapple, I hate it when people grapple. use the phrase "the white stuff." So I yes, thank you. I thank if I don't you. Go with the white stuff. I'll, I'll live to see another day, right? All right. So the what we can get from this is when you are seeing lots of grapple, it's a really good idea to get a blanket, get nice and worn with some grappa. All right, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Jay McQueen, weather guy, and the rest of the news staff, you now know the rest of the story. Uh, yesterday, we were talking about this very subject, and uh, we'll touch on it again today, about the minimum wage in Ontario being raised uh, to $15 an hour as of January of 2022. It was fascinating watching the news conference with the Premier uh, the other day because uh, one uh, a reporter asked, you know, why are you doing this? Why didn't you do this two or three years ago? Why didn't you do this before the pandemic? Why didn't you? Why now? Why didn't? And then he answered, and then uh, the same reporter asked the exact opposite and said, "Well, what about small business? They're going to hate all this." And da 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 da. Uh, so he was getting it from both directions uh, at the news conference, and it, and it is certainly continuing as uh, more digest what the minimum wage increase is all about. It's also fascinating that people are trying to bring the minimum wage discussion and the livable uh, income, a a, a a livable income debate to this as well i think it's two so totally separate discussions uh that people are trying to blend without people realizing what it is that being said let's get a canadian federation of independent business take on this julie kwasinski is with us she's the director of provincial affairs for ontario for the canadian federation of independent business and is with us now julie thanks for the time hope you're well I am 
well. How about yourself, Scott? I'm doing pretty good. Can't compare or can't complain for a Wednesday. So what are you what are you hearing about this? Because it seems we're getting mixed reaction here. Well, I have to tell you, number one, it was a total surprise. We found out like everybody else. And the first thing that comes to mind, you're thinking it's easy for the government to make this announcement because they're spending somebody else's money. And they didn't consult with the people whose money they're spending, i.e. businesses. So the other issue here is lack of consultation, especially during a COVID environment. And we're looking at the worst possible timing for this, Scott. So just I'm going to throw a few numbers out there to give you kind of like the lay of the land of a small business. So only 37% of Ontario's small businesses are at normal revenues for this time of year. 18% are actively considering bankruptcy. Some are operating at a loss every single day they are open. The average COVID-19 debt is a whopping $190,000 per small business, and small business owners are telling us it will take them two years or more to get out of that debt hole. Uh, so then if, if that's the case with 15, what would it be with 17 or 18 or 20 or some of the other people who are wanting more for this? How would that have affected business? Well, obviously, that would be a huge jump. And the one thing I really want to draw your listeners' attention to, because we're dealing with the here and now, the $15, how about this, Scott? 60 days notice of a 20% increase to the liquor server's wage. It's going up by 245 to $15. How do you think a restaurant feels about that right now, Scott? That's no. barely standing, able to survive. And on top of that, they have other costs already. The cost of administering the vaccine passports. They need help with that, too. In the view of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, is is a... A minimum wage supposed to be a livable wage. I agree with you that they are two separate discussions entirely. Why do I they always seem to be one then? Because I think that if you're looking at the perspectives of the people who are lobbying for the livable wage versus the minimum wage, it affords them the opportunity to start talking about the livable wage. It gives mm. them a platform every time the minimum wage discussion comes forward. Hmm. And I think what this comes down to, Scott, ultimately is timing. And it's bad that it's being announced now. That's bad enough. But how about let's fast forward to January and see where we're going to be in January. So most people are aware after Christmas, retail and restaurants pretty slow. No more parties for Christmas, pretty slow January, February, March. We're looking in January also where the largest Canada pension plan rise to date under the federal government CPP increase plan will take effect at the same time. Another thing people are not aware of, we have commercial eviction protection in this province. So that's going to end in mid-January, and at that point, a lot of businesses will be asked by landlords to immediately make up for months and months of unpaid rent. So that's going to be the perfect storm. And again, I have an old expression. I don't know where it came from, Scott. You can't take blood from a stone. How are these businesses 
going to be able to afford this in the context of COVID. And we're shocked because the government, this very government, you may recall, they froze the minimum wage at $14 an hour, didn't go to 15 froze it for a year, decided to index it to inflation so businesses could plan. So we had an increase on October 1st, albeit it was a small one. But next year, it's re-indexed to inflation again. So guess what? So on top of the $15 on Jan 1st, you're looking at a 50 or 60 cent per hour increase by October 1st. Julie Kwasinski is with us, Director of the Provincial Affairs for Ontario, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Not very happy with the minimum wage heading up in January uh, for the reasons that you've just heard. Julie, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck moving forward with all this. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Scott. Talk soon. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, Toronto Raptors. Do you remember before we even had them? And they were talking about getting an NBA team. Oh, it's a, it's a hockey town. I don't know that's going to work. Uh, well, the Toronto Raptors face Washington tonight, and uh, it's special today because it was on November 3rd, 1995, that the Raptors made their debut. 1995, and another anniversary tomorrow, 1993, the team was formalized. So lots has happened, including a championship. Which, you know, it's happened with the hockey team. Uh, let's bring in Manny Rao, staff writer and host of the lineup, Raptors Republic, and with us now. Manny, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I hope you're doing well, too. Uh, I am, thanks. Are you surprised how well this team has not, not necessarily even performed in a championship and such, but just the way it's been embraced by not only Toronto, but by Canada? Um, you know, I, I, it's not surprising to me how well they've been embraced because um, you know, the Raptors are such a, uh, they're such a, they have such a diverse group of fans and, you know, their, mm. their president, general manager, Masai Ujiri, Bobby Webster, um, they're guys that really like to get all of Toronto involved. Um, and they try to, you know, include fans as much as they can and they don't, uh, you know, they just love their fans. They love the support and, and so does the team. We remember way back when Vancouver also got a team, Vancouver Grizzlies, one survived, one did not. Why did one work and the other not? So I think what, what it came down to was um, the Grizzlies were purchased by by, uh, by a businessman in Memphis. And so then he moved them to Memphis after the, I believe, the 2000-2001 season or maybe mm. the 2001-2002 season um, because he thought it would the, the team would fare better in Memphis. And, um, you know, Toronto now has built up such uh, – they've, they've really, I think, uh, established themselves as – you know, one of the top organizations in the league to the point where they're actually 10th on the most uh, valuable the list of most valuable teams in the NBA. I think they're just about over $2 billion. Players want to play here because at a time, a new team, it's always tough, especially in other country. Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it is tough, but I mean, you know, when you have three Canadians um, taking the court for the team every night, yeah. and, you know, you see, you see all the... Uh, the support from the fans it's it's really overwhelming i think for for the players the staff and the whole organization really and how cool is that because we you know again getting back to hockey it's not uncommon to see someone local playing but man the nba is a whole different game uh it, it must just be a head game for these players every time they hit the court yeah no 100 percent it is um like you said you know in hockey you see so many canadians 
uh, you know, the league is predominantly Canadian with the NHL, but with the NBA, it's, uh, you know, you have, I think, just around 20, like either a little bit below 20 or a little bit above 20 players in the league right now that are Canadian. So, uh, you know, the game has grown steadily, slowly, but steadily. And, uh, you know, we expect to see another boom in, of Canadians in the NBA uh, probably within the next, you know, 10, 10 years. You talked about the growth of this team. Uh, that being said, um, has a championship under its belt already. The speed in which they did that. Surprised? Uh, because, you know, some teams it takes forever. Yeah, I mean, it's it definitely, you know, it definitely was surprising. But, I mean, it, you know, when you think about who's running the team now, it's it's uh, it's guys that are very credible. This is probably the most uh, competent front office that uh, the Raptors have ever put together. So, you know, I, I and the most prom, uh, probably the most com, uh, competent coaching staff as well. I mean, this is just uh, a great time to be a Raptors fan and a great time to, uh, you know, be a Toronto Raptor, really. And, you know, have we gotten past the point, and I think we have, and a championship will do that, uh, this isn't a new team anymore. This is a part of the fabric of this country. Exactly, and that's the thing, you know. I mean, you know, we, we talked about how, uh, there's three Canadians, and you know it's it's really important that we touch on that because you know it is it is the fabric of the country. This team is, in a lot of ways, embodies uh, Canada as, as a diverse uh, diverse whole. You know what I mean? A lot of people say, you know, Canada is very diverse, and and it is, and 100. percent And you know, when you think about this team, it's it's uh, it's guys from all different uh, walks of walks of life. So we know that. We know that we're in a phase of rebuilding at this time. Uh, only four veterans still on the team from from last. That being said, uh, we certainly know the patience with other sports teams in this city. Do people, do, do Torontonians, do Canadians have the patience for these guys to rebuild? I would hope so because um, the way that the Raptors have developed uh, their players and the way that they've gone about uh, establishing a culture of winning and, you know, putting the best team on the on the court every night. I think that they've earned that. Uh, with that being said, I mean they, you know, they they are playing quite well as of late. So I mean, it's uh, you know, this is this is a this is a treat. It's a it's a surprise of sorts, I guess you could say. And how do you explain that? Is that just the buzz of coming back to the city? Because that was a big part of this as well. They were saying that at the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think I think it has to do with coming back to Toronto. Um, oddly enough, the team has has dropped uh they they haven't lost a single game on the road um which i you know it's it's interesting because yeah you consider the the fact that they came back to toronto after uh around 600 days to finally you know that that's amazing and that's great and it's a homecoming of all of uh of epic proportions but i mean it's you know this team i think feels the support i think they they feel as though um you know the american media always kind of overlooks them and you know um you know they, they feel that and they see that and they hear it and you know, I think they just they just want to win, and you know they all expect each other to feel the same way. They want to win. Manny, Manny Rao with a staff writer and host of the lineup with Raptors Republic. Uh, Raptors face Washington tonight, and uh, an anniversary as the Raptors made their debut on this day back in 1995. Manny, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine, as well as Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks, around the big round table to discuss the uh, issues of the day. Uh, who think? <laughs> All right. Enough of the grapple. Although it is making me think of grappa. And a shot of that right now would be very nice, wouldn't you think? All right, uh, round table. Uh, thanks for joining us here. We're going to start with 
I'm hearing a bit of echo, Will. Uh, we're starting with the poll question of the day. We touched on this yesterday, but I want to look at it from a different angle. The Ontario poll question of the day, Ontario minimum wage going up to 15 bucks uh, in January. Is it enough? I believe 76% of you are saying no. Uh, yesterday we were talking about uh, you know the, the difference between a livable wage and the minimum wage, and, and the living wage people seem to be combining these. So uh, let's separate that aspect of it. If for a minimum wage job, job someone is being paid $15 an hour is that enough not as a livable wage but as a uh, as a minimum wage considering the only one higher than what we have is BC at 1520 other than the territories which that's a whole different question so Ted I'll start with you is that enough just for a basic forget about the livable income and 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 just a um, um, uh, you know a minimum wage uh, I don't know if you can separate the two I mean you know, I don't know. I mean, I honestly, I'm so far removed from a uh, minimum wage because I know yeah. years ago, you know, when I started, it was a lot, lot lower. Um, I but back then, was it about living on that minimum wage? And as you expressed, it has changed now, or has it? Well, I is fifteen dollars an hour again. The um, if you compare somebody in high school. That's a lot of money, $15 an hour, versus a single mom, for example, yeah. who has to work two or three jobs at $15 an hour. So, yeah. you know, there there is that. How do you get that? How do you delineate the two? I don't know if you can. Diana Weeks? Yeah, much of the same. I mean, I'd, it's, it's hard to say. So I are don't you know. having a hard time separating the two, or do you find, you know, okay, there's a minimum wage, that's a livable wage, they're two different things. As a minimum wage, how is that? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. Uh, but it also depends on, I guess, who's working that. Like it, like Ted was saying, you know, whether it's a teenager just trying to make it through school on the side, but if it's someone that relies on that as their job, like, I mean, you know, and their full income, like a single mom or someone that got laid off, I mean, I don't think $50 is going to cut it. I think a living wage needs to be in place, but how do you do that, right? So should a living wage and a minimum wage be separate? So there's a there's a there's a livable wage for those that qualify. There's a minimum wage for those that are starting. I think so. Well, I mean, a lot of this is we're getting into theoretical territory. You could even bring in universal basic income like some countries yeah. have done and have that set up. And if you had that, then you could have that as a separate thing. People build on it by getting a minimum wage job, but they are not, you know, going to end up destitute because they have something that they're working with in the first place. Uh, you get into the group dynamics of you have families where maybe everyone's got a minimum wage job. You get the job as soon as you can at a young age because you're pooling it. You're, you're working together to support each other. That's of stuff takes place i'd say we have to maybe we have to separate it maybe that's the idea here because yes right now this is a very muddy system where we're relying on minimum mm. wage to keep people alive and we're looking at this and we're looking at reports from hamilton where minimum wage that at 15 dollars an hour is not equaling what hamilton's enough, livable yeah. wage is yeah. so we got to do something all right, let's move on. Uh, this is a big announcement today. Ontario not making COVID-19 mandatory for uh, vaccinations, mandatory for hospital staff. They cite that uh, BC and Quebec are seeing uh, a cancellation of services as a result, surgeries as a result of this. And with, uh, you know, in some cases, over 90% of uh, doctors and such vaccinated, that they are safe. What are your thoughts on this? Ted, we'll start with you. What type of message does it send, though? Like, if I'm going in for, and I, I understand their argument that there have been a lot of 
of people that have been had their surgery postponed and people suffering from cancer and all that other stuff. But if the conversation comes up and I'm getting ready for surgery and I find out that yeah. people are not vaccinated and I'm lying there putting my literally my life in their hands, I'm not going to feel too good about it. I don't like the decision. Uh, okay, Diana? Yeah, I, I'm kind of of the same mind there. I mean, it's hard, though. It's it's all back to that. Well, if you really do have a, like a, an actual exemption, then should you, you know, not be able to work because you legitimately cannot get this COVID-19 vaccine? But I think that to have that policy in place where it's not mandatory for hospital workers just in general, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable with that. I mean, we got to be vaccinated for everything. And yet when we're going into the places to be treated, that's, you know, the highest risk, the workers there aren't vac- like some of them aren't vaccinated. Mm. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I agree with that. I mean, in the sense, I, I got rid of my massage therapist because she said she wasn't vaccinated and went on to somebody that does. But let me ask you this question. Is it about being safe or making sure that everyone participates and is vaccinated? In other words, if they say it's safe, is it about that or is it about making sure everyone buys in? I think it's the latter. Like, I think we really need to do it for the greater good. I think that's what this whole thing's been about. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I agree. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It makes me pretty squeamish to think that if someone coughs on me while I'm getting my uh, open heart or something like that, that it might be cold. <laughs> I, I want to know it's a good old-fashioned cold that's being coughed into the open wound. Uh, uh, you know, maybe there's some sort of place for... Um, Breaking it up, because when they talk about hospital workers or whatever, I mean, it's not yeah, necessarily everyone's staff. But at the same time, um, yeah, no, I do understand the concerns about how many staff are you losing? How, how cut, how short-staffed will you be if they make this? But at the same time, do we want to make the environment uh, of the hospital that risky? You know? All right, let's talk sports and COVID-19. Sidney Crosby testing positive, uh, and he has been vaccinated. Does it matter anymore now, as long as you're vaccinated, whether Sidney Crosby tests positive or not? Ted? Well, I'd like to find out uh, how Sidney Crosby got infected, because apparently he has a mild case of it. But it, was he vaccinated? Apparently he was. So I don't know. It. They all warned us that this could happen, that even if you're vaccinated, you're double vaccinated, that you still could get COVID. Right. Will. The, well, the, just the idea, and this is the important part, he is vaccinated. That's probably why it's a mild case. Yeah, exactly. That's why you want to yeah. get it. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody ever said to us, uh, you know, like, you get this vaccine, it's the silver bullet, you're going to be Teflon against COVID. Yep. Nobody ever said that. It's just that if we get it understandably this is from what i understand if we get it it's going to hopefully a milder be less, case yeah like we'd, we'd be able to survive it which then again doesn't put the strain on the hospitals so at the end of the day with him getting it what's the message that it sends because to one it would be something to others it may be something different what do you think the message is reading the story Sidney crosby test positive but he's fine i think as soon as the anti-vaxxers see that they're going to say oh we'll see because he got the vaccine <laughs> he still got it but <laughs> like you can't it's not that black and white it's gray like i mean he yeah. might have it but perhaps he doesn't have it to the extent that someone who wasn't unvaccinated would have it you know and then that's what we got to look at that's got to be the focal point i think all right thank you crew much appreciated as always another edition of the big round table with will erskine diana weeks and ted michaels 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, we all know and have chatted uh, at great length about how a global pandemic has affected us all, um, whether it's purchase, uh, purchasing certain items, shortages of such, supply chain issues. Uh, we hear about it all, and especially uh, we remember when the pandemic was uh, at its height, I guess. A lot of people staying home and doing home renovations and then had a hard time getting supplies. We remember the price of lumber went up like three times what it normally was. And you can imagine how that would affect something like a price of a home or even getting it built on time. Is this all about pricing or uh, could it also affect your move-in date if you're buying a home? Uh, the Canadian Home Builders Association says that supply chain issues are affecting home builders as well. To talk more about all of this, Kevin Lee is with us, CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association and with us now. Kevin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for having me. So we've certainly heard how uh, pricing lumber specifically it was a great example a few months ago on how much uh, that had gone up and obviously affecting uh, the pricing of homes and such, but also affecting your move-in date. Uh, and for people who are building a home um, from a, a neighborhood that is in the process of being built, uh, this could uh, this could really complicate things. So it's it's affecting the move-in date as much as it is the price as well. Correct. Yeah, that's that's definitely true, and it's been going on for for quite some time now. Um, and we've been surveying our members across the country just to sort of get a feel for what kind of delays we're looking at, just as a result of not being able to get materials through construction. And overall, the national average is about an eight week delay in in closing for homes, in, you know, for move in dates, just because of all the challenges with the supply chain. What does that mean for the purchaser? Uh, wh- where does that leave them? I remember uh, because we bought ours sight unseen from a lot and then watched and enjoyed it being built and such and, and, and checking it out. Um, but if there's a delay, sometimes they will pay you for that if they don't, you know, if there's enough time, uh, they don't give you enough time and, and tell you about it. How has this changed all of that? Uh, because obviously they can't be held responsibility for a supply chain issue. Yeah, that's that's unfortunately true, right, because of the challenges with the supply chain. And some of this is, you know, uh, covered through warranty programs as well. But because uh, because of the extenuating circumstances, the warranty programs are having to uh, make exceptions as well to just un- under the circumstances. So definitely from a home buyer's perspective, you want to stay in, in close contact with your builders. And I think overall builders have been uh, pretty upfront in conveying uh, timing and that with the, their their purchasers and and unfortunately you might have to be planning on uh, staring where you are a little bit longer uh, under the circumstances what happens when the price of materials go up before the house is built and uh, the builder stuck with that i mean what does that get passed on how, how would you deal with that yeah, it's, it's been one of the big challenges through the pandemic because of course builders typically provide fixed price contracts um when the, the prices go up in, in, during construction and that, uh, unfortunately for, for builders, that becomes, eats into uh, their margins. And it could, we've had builders who had some struggles definitely just running their businesses because of losses. Because And you mentioned lumber in the introduction. That was just astronomical in terms of its price increases. Um, you know, as things have gone on, the builders have been, been able to build that into pricing um, a little bit better. 
And then some have also, you know, especially when lumber was going crazy the way it was, put in actual price escalation clauses, which would be in that purchase contract that says, you know, we'll cover up to X amount, but then if it becomes more, it's something that the uh, the home buyer would have to uh, take on as well. So, but that would be right there in the purchase and sale agreement. We know that uh, obviously there's a great need for the trades before a global pandemic. Uh, what's it like now? How is that adding to this discussion? Oh, that's yes, you're right. It was a challenge before the pandemic uh, and continues to be a challenge now. Um, we've got about 20% of our trades and skilled workers retiring over the coming decade, um, which is a big challenge because, of course, it's the experience ones that are retiring and and you hope to hire new but that which is hard to do but then on top of that you don't have the same level of experience so um that is a challenge that we continue to face for young people wondering what to do in terms of careers residential construction home building a great place to have a long and successful career right now lots of opportunities um and it's also affecting pricing too so again we're you know from our survey of members the uh, price of uh, labor and trades has gone up about 19 percent over the course of the pandemic just lack of uh, availability causing it how has the pandemic changed people's attitudes about what they buy uh, for the longest time everybody's complaining about urban sprawl and you, you got to fill in infield and in uh, certain lots within the city limits rather than expanding uh, have we got to the point where we just need to build more homes well, there's no question we need to build more homes of all types. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, that single detached dream home that most Canadians still aspire to have. But we need housing of all types. We have a major supply shortage, which has been one of the big reasons for the rapidly escalating prices across the country and certainly in our urban centres. But to your point also, I think what's happened is this ability to work from home, which uh, really was accelerated by who knows how much, maybe a decade through the pandemic, has really given flexibility for people. Uh, and when your commute is going to be, you know, maybe just a couple of days a week or non-existent, it does enable you to live in a completely different location. So uh, smaller centres are, are seeing that uh, increase in demand, and, and there are certainly benefits for, for home buyers who can now think about living and buying a different type of home in a different place than they would have prior to the pandemic. Why aren't we building more affordable, more uh, high, maybe higher denser, uh, higher density, smaller uh, homes, this sort of thing? And are they still as attractive? Some of what's available in the marketplace. Um, yeah, I mean, even the say the starter home, which has gone you know smaller, smaller. Then became townhomes. Then became stacked townhomes, and now we're seeing back to backs townhomes, townhomes. I mean, people still want access sort of ground access, typically, if they can get it. Um, But I think the biggest challenge in many cases is uh, as much as, uh, you know, municipalities and other planners would like to see more densification, it's often not popular, certainly with the people who already live in those neighbourhoods. So NIMBYism, you know, that not in my backyard Mm. mentality is alive and well, and it becomes very difficult to... uh, you know, put up, you know, slightly higher building, put up a fourplex in an area that would normally be single family homes. So these are all things that are going to have to change over the next while if we're going to get that sort of gentle density and create more affordable options and and uh, not just look to exclusively to greenfield development to, to build more housing. Kevin Lee with us, CEO of the Canadian Home Builders Association, talking about supply chain issues and how that has affected those purchasing a home. Kevin, thanks for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. 
earlier on today, Christine Elliott, as I just mentioned, Christine Elliott, health minister, announced that uh, it would not be mandatory for health care workers to get vaccinated. They said over 90 percent of doctors and such are that they can manage the risk. Uh, and here's what the health minister had to say on why they went the direction that they did. We uh, decided that this is the right decision for right now here in Ontario. While individual hospitals can make their own determination, we had to really do a a risk assessment, taking a look at the answers that we received from the many uh, groups that the Premier sent the letter to, as well as what's going on on the ground in other jurisdictions. Uh, And that being said, hospitals in other provinces are seeing some setbacks. We know that in British Columbia, for example, they've had to cancel some of their scheduled surgeries because they've got about 3,300 workers that are out on leave now and uh, are being requested to have vaccinations. And uh, Quebec has just announced that they are taking another look at their original mandatory vaccination policy. And explaining the reason behind their decision not to implement a vaccine mandate. The concern that we had that we would lose some of our uh, precious health human resources compared to a relatively small number of outbreaks. And that's why the determination was made not to proceed with a mandatory policy at this time. Although we're continuing to watch the numbers every day and we'll see what happens as we go further into the winter. And on that some are uh, some areas of Ontario are struggling more than others. Depending on where they are in the province of Ontario, some places are really struggling more with health human resources than other areas. But that's one of the primary concerns that we needed to take into consideration because we don't want to have to cancel surgeries. In Ontario, we've been very fortunate that we've been able to keep those surgeries going, even though we still have thousands of people that are waiting for those surgeries. All right. So uh, earlier today, Christine Elliott, health minister, announcing that uh, it would not be mandatory for hospital workers. So this is everybody, anybody that's in uh, the hospital, not necessarily doctors, nurses and what have you, everybody that's there. Uh, they are saying in some cases it's well over 90 percent, but it's not complete. And, of course, worried that if they start uh, to make it mandatory, that they will lose uh, they will lose employees. And as a result of that, we'll have to cancel surgeries, as they've seen in Quebec in British Columbia. So obviously a very fine line to walk. And how do you balance all of this? I don't know. Let's bring in Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalla School of Public Health. And he is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. Uh, first, want to get your uh, reaction, Colin, on the Ontario government announcing earlier today that it will not be making uh, the vaccination for COVID-19 uh, mandatory for healthcare workers, uh, citing that it could lead uh, to a shortage and therefore a cancellation of surgeries. What are your thoughts? I, I don't think they ever thought this through carefully. I'm disappointed by that decision, but they set it up to be uh, at risk of failure. We should have gone area by area and reassigned workers uh, instead of firing them, not, not to set up this big showdown uh, where it becomes a question of bodily autonomy, but, but make it to patient safety. If you work in contact with patients and you're in this hospital or that facility or this department, this week you get transferred and you can work in laundry or soil utility or the kitchen. We'll find you some work where you're not in front of patients because we're protecting patients. That discourse would have worked. And you, you do it hospital by hospital. You don't have to do it all at once. And it, we, we wouldn't create martyrs and we wouldn't create shortages. So I, I, just, I just think we went about it in kind of a dumb way and then ended up with a dumb decision because of it. Is it possible, though, to say somebody who does one line of work to say, okay, is, you know, if you're patient, patient-centered, then you've got to go and work in the kitchen or do this or the other? Is that, is that feasible? 
well, I'm not a union lawyer or anything like that, but it seems to me that if illegally you can fire someone, uh, reassigning them is not nearly as bad. So you could certainly, at the very least, presumably give people a choice. And what if the hospital itself has a choice? Because we understand that they do and they can make their own decision on this uh, if they feel they can, they can do it and, and do it safely. Well, that you know, it, again, it puts the it puts the onus on individual organizations and, and, and institutions, and makes it a labor issue as opposed to a policy issue. And I think that makes it worse. It makes it really difficult. The province, in that sense, I think, is is abdicating responsibility, and I think that's a problem. If the province said this is important, protecting patients is important, it would be a lot easier for hospitals to be able to press ahead with those kinds of policies. The other thing is, is that these are getting challenged. I mean, there are, there are union grievances out there. There's more than one. And uh, the law seems to be, and again, I'm not a lawyer, we should talk to one, the law seems to be that employers can institute rules like this. But if those grievances tend to work in terms of this is not fair, this is not proportionate, this is not reasonable, then we might actually end up in some trouble. Uh, if uh, you're, as you were saying earlier, doctor, that if we reallocate these people to other parts where they're not patient, uh, they're not in front of patients and such, does that still not create a, sh- a shortage? Because there's still those that are needed that are in front of hospital staff. Well, again, if you do it one one area at a time, one geography at a time, one hospital at yeah. a time, and you, you do that gradually, I don't think you end up with a crisis. But I, I think I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of brinksmanship here in terms of if enough of us if enough of us say no as a matter of opposition, we can cause the initiative to fail. I think I think that's actually what's happened when you tell people their job is going to change. I don't think you set up the same brinksmanship, uh, especially when you do it department by department. I mean, you divide and conquer essentially. I, I, I think we could have should have and arguably still could do it in a smart way now we we've, we've certainly heard of what our vaccination rates are in ontario we should all be very proud of that those that are of us that are vaccinated fully vaccinated once we get to this point doctor once we get close to 90 or around 90 percent does this discussion matter simply because there'll always be that segment who refuses to get it to participate well, there's that segment that refuses to get vaccinated against measles and other kinds of diseases, and, and we see outbreaks occasionally, and they tend to be confined to people who aren't vaccinated, but that's, that, that, it does work. I mean, measles exists, and technically it's circulating, but you, you don't go out the door wondering if you're going to catch measles today. So I think we might be able to relegate. I'm optimistic we can relegate COVID to the same kind of thing. We get vaccination into the 90s, and it's got to be everyone. COVID doesn't care who's eligible for vaccination. Everyone's eligible mm. to be infected. So we need to think about about the whole population going all the way down to six months of age. We need, we need to be in the 90s, it seems to me. And when that happens, I think we may end up with a measles thing where it's out there somewhere, but it's not showing up regularly. In fact, it only shows up quite rarely. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore today talking about boosters, announcing booster shots, those 70 plus, those that have two shots of AZ and uh, those in healthcare, indigenous communities and such, and being very vague here. Uh, do you anticipate the same sort of issues, problems, whether it's supply or hesitancy with the booster as we did during the first few waves of this? I think there'll be less hesitancy among people who've already had two. I think once you've committed to two, getting a third one probably doesn't seem quite so catastrophic. There yeah. may be less urgency, though. We see it everywhere that governments, when governments telegraph and media telegraph that, hey, COVID's in retreat, everything's fine, you feel safe, open restaurants, vaccination rates slow down. 
and we, we've seen it happen in Saskatchewan, in Alberta, uh, in BC, in New Brunswick, everywhere where cases went up, it was really preceded with vaccination rates falling off because there wasn't, wasn't urgency. Fear is a powerful motivator. It shouldn't be, but unfortunately it is. So I think we may see some, we may see a bit of sluggishness, but I doubt, and I don't have inside knowledge, but I doubt we're going to see vaccine supply issues. That was, that was a big traumatizing thing really early on when there were millions of people who really wanted it now and only a trickle coming in. But I think the supply is good. I think we talk more about wastage than we do about shortage. Uh, it announced this. It was announced this week. Uh, hockey player Sidney Crosby fully vaccinated and test positive. What is the message we should learn from that? Because there's lots of anti-vaxxers out there that say, "See, look, it happened to him." What's your message? Well, I, I, there's no reasoning with anti-vaxxers. I, I, I don't think I don't think logic works. So I'm going to set that piece aside and say, look, the the Delta the the vaccine is about 88 percent effective against Delta. 88 is good. But it's not 100, and it's not even actually close to 100. And, and so there's an idea of force of infection. You can be healthy, you can be vaccinated, you can be confident, but if you're in a room with enough COVID, you're going to get COVID. That's the way it works. If you're in a room with very little COVID, you'll be fine. And either way, you probably won't get serious disease. So the vaccine helps to prevent you getting infected. It helps prevent transmission, and it helps prevent serious illness. So it's, it's helpful on all of those sides. But it's not a magic bullet. And so I would want to look at the hockey teams uh, and their practice their practices. I don't mean the rehearsals. I mean uh, how they how they hang out together. What's the air quality like in the locker rooms? What's going on in buses? What about airplanes? What about hotels when they travel? Hotels are not COVID safe. We know this. There's a lot of transmission that happens in hotels. And the other thing is COVID doesn't come from sticks or pucks. COVID comes from people. So how did COVID enter this group of tightly knit guys who exhale on each other a lot on the ice and, <laughs> and in close quarters? So that, that's a, there, there's a security problem there, and that suggests to me there's not enough testing going on. If, if you find occasional one-off cases, that means that testing is working and that you're catching them. But when you've got transmission within a team, it's a fail. And, and so I would want to revisit those practices. Uh, really quickly, because we just got a listener asked us about the third dose uh, and mixing that third dose. Your thoughts, you know, one to the other, uh, whether you've had one vaccine, then the other. Mixing is good. I want to be clear about it. And I'm an AstraZeneca-Moderna hybrid myself. The, you know, a lot of people feel that, you know, having your car, car tires matched is a good thing for, for wear and tear, and therefore having, you know, vaccination matched doesn't work that way. Vaccine diversity. Stimulate your immune system in different ways. You get a better outcome. So vaccine diversity is a good thing. And get vaccinated no matter what, fully, both shots, and then the booster. Dr. Colin Furness with us, epidemiologist, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. We had this uh, discussion, uh, we've had it over the last couple of days, and uh, we want to bring Dr. Kerry Bowman back and uh, talk about the ethics behind what is going on or what went on at the G20, what is going on at the COP26, and plans for addressing climate change. We were specifically talking earlier on about um, just the, the, the change in attitude, for example, those that are sending the billionaires, sending rockets up into space. Uh, they should be doing more to help society. And uh, 
uh, I, I believe somebody questioned um, uh, Elon Musk about this and said, well, you know, why don't you donate X number of dollars and then you would solve uh, uh, hunger and this and that and the other. And Elon Musk basically, and this is all on social media, if you, uh, you know, if, if you can give me an idea how this will all work, I will gladly write the check. And then as I'm watching coverage of the COP26 the other night, I'm seeing Jeff Bezos and his pledge to help. Let's bring in Dr. Kerry Bowman, bioethicist with the University of Toronto, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well indeed. So your thoughts on here we are chatting about uh, billionaires in space, and all of a sudden uh, Jeff Bezos decides he's going to write a check. What, uh, reason for this? Why now? Your thoughts? Well, you know, attention's been drawn to this issue, and and you know, more and more people are getting on board that this is a really serious situation, and 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 you know, something absolutely has to be done. So, so I think that's very good. Um, now, I've been teaching most of the day, and I, I I didn't have time to dig up all the information on 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 Jeff, um, but you know, this is a huge improvement, and. You know, the one with Elon Musk sort of turned into this. It wasn't clearly defined. And a lot of people feel that Elon Musk made a strong point that, you know, world hunger can't be solved. Um, but again, world hunger and the climate crisis are a little bit different, although they're interrelated. I think it's great news. I think it's really encouraging. Uh, will people view these these bazillionaires differently now, whether it's Elon Musk or, or Bezos or any of them? Is this what they have to do? Well, you know, I think it probably is. But look, you know, it, it, it's rough because nobody tells me or you, um, either or any of us or anyone listening, how we should be spending our money. So, so why them? But we do live in a society where more and more money is moving to the top and that money does not move. You know, the word currency comes from the word current, right? Like to move and it doesn't. It's a big problem. And, and so I think that this is, is very, very much a good thing uh, because it is, it is a contribution um, which we all have to make to, towards solutions. Is that all you have to do? Pledging $2 billion for restoring nature. That's it. It's done. I can move on. Uh, when's the next ship go up? No, absolutely not. But, you know, if you look at, at what you can do to, act, you know, in terms of seed money to get some important projects going, it's really, really important. You know, again, it depends what exactly his money will go to. But, you know, I, I myself am working on some of these projects. And it's not that writing checks is the only solution. But it certainly helps if high-income countries are in a position to help uh, with forest restoration, especially with tropical forests and things like that. It's enormously helpful. You need a whole lot of other things. You need the cultural buy-in of the people. Uh, you need the projects to be in the hands of the people and not, not by foreign people calling the shots, but in fact, you know, other things happening. And... Um, you know what, maybe I'm jumping ahead on you a little bit here, but the, the pledge towards the forest recovery um, and preservation is, mm -hmm. is really, really a wonderful thing. And, you know, you can do a lot with funding, but again, you've got to bring this directly to the nations involved. Um, but, but I think the pledge, now the problem is, and I'm going to sound cynical, but I think, you know, anyone's going to realize there's a difference between saying you're going to do something and actually doing it. And, you know, with politicians, you can never be sure if they're going to actually come through with this or not. So a lot of it will depend on that. But, um, 
boy, oh boy, is that going to be helpful because the climate crisis is, is absolutely real. But there's an element of the climate crisis we don't talk much about, and that's biodiversity loss. So the amount of species that are vanishing off the face of the earth beyond the scope of this interview, but it, it, it's a huge threat as well. And what they're doing with this forest preservation is absolutely wonderful because it reverses that and it, secure, it, it stops it from progressing any further. And in some cases, you know, you, you're not generating new species, obviously, but you're securing many and allowing their populations to recover. And as well, Doctor, by focusing something on something like deforestation, which was, was a big issue that came out the other day, I think that's something people can wrap their heads around. They yes, get that as is. opposed to carbon pricing and everything else. Yeah. And what carbon actually is and words like carbon sink and forest store carbon. I, I mean, these are concepts, you know, they're tough even for, for people with high educational levels, like as to how that exactly works. Um, if a forest is no longer there, exactly what you're saying, people understand what that yeah. means. And there's a whole lot of species that have nowhere to live and are going to die very, very fast. And I, I am so thankful to see the, you know, the forest recovery. And then it's got an indigenous element. So, so what does that mean? How does that work? You know, so I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm working in the Amazon a great deal. And what you see in the Amazon rainforest, that's of course Central America. Uh, Brazil, not exclusively Brazil, but but there's nine countries, but most of the Amazon is in is in the nation of Brazil. Um, is that when the Amazon is in when indigenous people are in control of the forest, uh, deforestation is minimal, biodiversity mm. is secure, hunting is is not as extreme. It's balanced. So by allowing indigenous people to continue on with their thousands of year old way of life, um, you are securing the forest. It's also true within within the Congo Basin. It's true in different parts of the world. So I actually think they've got a brilliant solution here. And and Indigenous people have been left out. They know yeah. more about these things than so many people do. Uh, lots of chatter around that in British Columbia during the forest fires of, of last summer Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. We're out of time here, Doctor. We'll chat again. Dr. Kerry yeah. Bowen with his bioethicist with the University of Toronto talking about the G20 and COP26 and how we move forward. As always, Doctor, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Uh, we've been having this the, the discussion in regard to the minimum wage in Ontario going up to $15 an hour as of uh, January of next year. Uh, then will be the second highest under BC, which theirs is at $15.20. Uh, the rest below that, with the exception of Yukon, or the territories rather, which uh, are obviously uh, in, in a different situation. Uh, but we, we've been having the discussion about uh, every time we talk about the minimum wage, we ended up talking about the living wage or a livable wage or a basic income, which is to me two completely different discussions, but somehow they get wedged in together. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, I am. Thanks, uh, Scott. I know you're a stats guy, Ian. Do we know who is making minimum wage? How many of those are starter positions or starter students or whatever that are taking out? And how many are actually trying to make a living? A single parent, for example, uh, trying to get by with two or three of these jobs. Do we have those numbers? Yes. Yes, we have pretty good statistics. Um, 8.8% of Canadians on receiving minimum wage are below the poverty line. Uh, the poverty line right now for a single person is, uh, StatsCan produces this data, by the way, is the last time I looked, and it was fairly recently, is about 23,000 Canadian. Um, of course, I'm quoting Canadian dollars uh, for, a, for a single person. 
and as I said, 8.8% of Canadians are below the poverty line that are receiving minimum wage. That's the first point. The second point is that the vast majority of Canadians do not make minimum wage. Only a very small number. Third point, the majority, one study says 53%, another study I read in Ontario said 65%, two-thirds of the people making minimum wage are between the ages of 15 and 24. Overwhelmingly, they're young people living at home with their parents, students, uh, making minimum wage. Now, some listeners may say, well, that's not a reason to exploit young people, you know. It's not a living wage, you know. And um, my argument to that, and, and by the way, I don't consult anybody, um, and I did work at minimum wage when I was 15 years old. I got my first few jobs as minimum wage jobs yep. where I learned, you know, just basic things about business. But the point I want to make, Scott, is that the minimum wage, by driving it up, what we are doing is incentivizing, motivating businesses, large businesses I'm now talking, across Canada to install the automated checkout counters. Yeah. Um, there is a study, it was done by, I think it was either McKinsey or Deloitte, very nice study, showing uh, of this business, of the, the, the technology. And the machines are, if, I, if my memory serves me well, I read the study about a year and a half ago, they're about $70,000 per unit, but they save between five and seven minimum wage jobs per machine, per device, on an annualized basis. And so what's happening, and, we, and anyone who's denying this, sitting there yelling at me right now on their radio, uh, walk, go to a Loblaws, go to Home Depot, go to Walmart, and take a look at those machines. And if you think that those companies are paying for those machines to increase the number of workers in that store, you're dreaming. You're investing in those machines to get rid of minimum wage jobs, to reduce minimum wage jobs. And, and so, although we say that we're doing this out of social justice, uh, because who can live on minimum wage, the vast majority of people on minimum wage are not, they're living at home, and they're not below the poverty line. If we want to address poverty, there are other tools that can be used, whether we want to talk about unemployment insurance or social assistance, once upon a time called welfare, whether we want to talk about subsidized housing, there's many, many, there's a plethora of social programs we can use to address poverty. But if our, our if the goal is to address poverty, those below the poverty line, the minimum wage is not going to solve the problem because only 8.8% of Canadians that receive minimum wage are below the poverty line. What we're doing, this is the classic example of uh, unintended consequences is that we are incentivizing, by driving up the cost of minimum wage, those companies that employ large numbers, which is mostly retail, by the way, retailing, yeah. we're incentivizing them to do what? Invest in these machines to get rid of these jobs. And so I looked up StatsCan and said, okay, how many are in cashier positions in retail? And that's StatsCan's phrase, by the way, cashiers. There's 300,000 in Canada uh, um, now. And so what we're doing what we're doing, let's be very clear on that, is we're incentivizing them to get rid of these jobs. Now, some may say, well, wait a minute, what about small business that can't afford those machines? And that is absolutely correct. The small, and I'm talking the mom and pop stores on, mm -hmm. on, uh, you know, on Bank Street in Ottawa, any down, any strip, you know, long strip where there's lots of small businesses, mom and pop type stores, what they're doing, and there's lots of evidence for this, is they're doing what John Kenneth Galbraith, the great Canadian social democratic economist at Harvard, 
talked about 50, 60 years ago. He said entrepreneurship is essentially self-exploitation. An entrepreneur exploits himself or herself. And you're seeing that now as the minimum wage goes up, up, up. They're getting rid of people, and then they're just working longer hours themselves. In other words, they're gaining, engaging in further self-exploitation. So those who say we're solving the problem by putting up the image, no, I would argue the opposite. We're making the problem worse. Let me ask you this, Ian. Why is it whenever we have a discussion about the minimum wage in this country, it always gets hijacked and we always move the discussion to a livable wage? Because I think they understand, those people advocating understand the numbers are not there. They understand the the evidence-based research does not support their position. And so they they try and inject a moral dimension to the argument um, of living wage. Who can be against a living wage? Well, I'm not against a living wage either. But that that is not an argument. But should my should my te- should my should my teenager that's flipping burgers some way be make somewhere be making that? No, that should go to someone who needs it in a single parent situation who's got three of those jobs. But that does not involve minimum wage. That's right. In fact, most Canadians, I think it's. I'd have to look it up. I had it a little while ago, but I don't have it on my fingertips. It's it's over ninety percent of Canadians are above the minimum wage. So this argument that we're going to solve poverty or solve uh, those who can't survive is simply not supported by the data. Um, now, I want to talk about the, that for one quick moment, about the livable wage argument. We have had a history in our country for the last probably 70 years, since the Second World War, I guess, of the idea of a progressive income tax system. I'm not changing the subject at all. We charge much higher rates of tax on higher income people to redistribute income to lower income people. We can call them GST rebates, we can call it social assistance, we can call it unemployment, we can call it all the plethora. And there are hundreds of social policies in Canada to help low income people. We have, although Mr. Trudeau for several years said we didn't, we have 10 pharmacare programs in Canada that pay 44% of all the prescription drugs by the taxpayer to low-income people. So I'm not against the idea of helping people at the bottom, which is what the argument for a livable wage. It's one of those things that tugs at the heartstrings, and who can be against a livable wage? But we have developed a huge amount of programs to redistribute income to people and the bottom quintile. The bottom quintile is those who are in the bottom 20%, mm-hmm. and that's uh, around 20, if, I, if I, my memory serves me well, the bottom quintile are people earning up to about 24000 per year. And so there's your bottom quintile. Those are the people we target for help, and we do it through redistribution of income. Yeah. That's the way we should be addressing poverty. Instead of outsourcing or trying to outsource the job to the private sector and say, this is your job. No, it's not. Their job is to make widgets or restaurant meals mm. or uh, Apple iPhones or whatever. That's their job. And it's the role government po- uh, is responsible for social policy and adre- alleviating poverty. It's not the role of the private sector. And so we're, it's bad policy. It isn't supported by evidence. And we've got the wrong agent we're mm. trying to impose the uh, liability or accountability on the companies for this problem when it's the rule of government. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Always funny, and thanks for the time. Be well.
My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Will and Jay and uh, Ted and Diana for participating. And speaking of Jay, we leave it to him to have the last word. Grapple. Grapple.